Okay, so let's start at the beginning. A very good place to start. (laughs) Okay, I'm just going to search. When does the suffrage movement begin? Okay, this first entry tells me the women's suffrage movement actually began in 1848 when a women's rights convention was held in Seneca Falls, New York. Oh, yeah. Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony were there. And they led the fight until 1920 when all women got the vote. I feel like that's kind of how I learned it, right? Mm, That's how I was taught it, yeah. Every piece of that is wrong. First of all, we don't begin the story with 1848. We begin it a thousand years ago when Haudenosaunee women had political voice on this land. That's historian and suffrage fact checker, Sally Rush Wagner. Susan B. Anthony was not in Seneca Falls in 1848. Whoa, okay, well, then there's a lot that's wrong about this. History in some ways becomes a telephone game, you know? One person tells the story and then the other person picks up that story. And it isn't until sometimes we get an anniversary, like the centennial, when history, which is usually on the back burner, is moved to the front burner and we have a chance to examine the story that we've been telling and seeing, did we miss anything? Boy, did we miss a lot. (laughs) And today, we're going to fix that. It's time for some serious fact-checking. I'm Retta. And I'm Rosario Dawson. And this is And Nothing Less, Episode 2, Myths and Legends. When we tell the story of the 19th Amendment, one of the most well-known parts is the beginning at Seneca Falls. This is the site of the first women's right convention in 1848, Seneca Falls, New York. It's in the Finger Lakes region of the state, and now it's home to a national park. We're correct to call this the first. If we're clear, we mean the first women's rights convention. But this was not the beginning of the movement. Women have been gathering and advocating for their own rights for as long as they wanted to have them. This is especially evident when you look at the history of Black women organizing, says Martha Jones. She's the author of Vanguard, How Black Women Broke Barriers, Won the Vote, and insisted on equality for all. So even before, for example, the Seneca Falls Convention, African-American women, Black Methodist women, have been organizing and advocating within their church community for political power. What that means before the Civil War in particular is Black women have been organizing and advocating, and in some cases winning, the right to preaching licenses, to have religious authority, the authority and access to the pulpit within their religious communities. So what actually happened at Seneca Falls? And why has it become such a big part of the suffrage story? Carnegie Mellon historian Lisa Tatro actually wrote a book on this called Aptly, The Myth of Seneca Falls. When you talk about the suffrage story, it's often narrated as a single story, beginning in 1848 and ending in 1920. 
1848 is when the first women's rights convention in the U.S. was held, or at least something named explicitly the first women's rights convention. It was held in Seneca Falls, New York. Elizabeth Cady Stanton had settled there. She was a newlywed. She had married an abolitionist and knew some people in the abolitionist circles. A very distinguished one, Lucretia Shamad, came through the town and invited Stanton for tea. And as the story goes, Elizabeth Cady Stanton poured out her domestic woes over a tea table, and then and there, these five women decided they would hold a convention to protest women's wrongs. And then, after spilling the tea at Elizabeth Cady Stanton's home, sorry, it was too easy, (laughs) Stanton and Lucretia Mott placed a little ad in the local newspaper. And just short of two weeks later, they held a convention. In that time, they wrote something called the Declaration of Sentiments, which was like their women's rights manifesto that they read at the convention, which took place over two days. And then they all signed it. About 300 people showed up. We're standing right next to the Wesleyan Chapel, where the first women's rights convention was held on July 19 and 20 of 1848. That's Andrea Decoder, acting superintendent of the Women's Rights National Historic Park in Seneca Falls. The Declaration of Sentiments says, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one portion of the family of man to assume among the people of the earth a position different. And there's one line in particular that really sticks with Decoder. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men and women are created equal. You know, whenever I read that, I just have this moment where I have to pause after saying that all men and women are created equal, because think about the shock and the chills that 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 met with when they read it for the first time at the convention. The convention stuck with someone else that day. Here is the report from the North Star Printing Office in nearby Rochester, which was owned by Frederick Douglass a convention to discuss the social, civil, and religious condition of women, was called by the women of Seneca County, New York, and held at the village of Seneca Falls and the Wesleyan Chapel on the 19th and 20th of July, 1848. The question was discussed throughout two entire days, the first day by women exclusively, the second day men participated in the deliberations. Lucretia Mott of Philadelphia was the moving spirit of the occasion. So what did they talk about? A whole laundry list, Lisa Tetro explains. In the Declaration of Sentiments were a whole list of demands that the women and men at this convention endorsed. Equal wages, an end to the sexual double standard, women's access to the professions, a woman's right to own property, and also the right to vote, quite controversially. That was the one thing that didn't pass unanimously. Frederick Douglass, the emerging African-American statesman, escaped slave and abolitionist, lived up the road in Rochester, New York. So he was there as well. And he gave an impassioned defense of the voting of women. And with that, it ended up passing. But it was the only resolution not to pass unanimously. From there, the Declaration of Sentiments kind of went out into the nation and a variety of women around the country, mostly in the Midwest and the Northeast, started organizing women's rights conventions. And all of this culminated in 1850 in a national women's rights convention, the first, which would have been advertised well in advance and invited people from around the country in Worcester. It's called the Worcester Convention of 1850. That other convention was organized by Lucy Stone. If her name is new to you, you're not alone. She never made it on a coin. But we'll hear more about her in a bit. So back to Seneca Falls, 1848. 
here we are at the beginning of the suffrage movement. It was not the beginning of the suffrage movement. Oh, right, right, right. Ooh, that's right. That story of Seneca Falls is often used today and in the 19th century to start the beginning of the suffrage movement. It was one of the first calls for the right to vote. One of the great myths about Seneca Falls is that it was the first demand for the suffrage. It was not. And the thing about that story that I became curious about was why do people tell that story when there's so many other things that could be used to anchor a beginning or to anchor multiple beginnings? Seneca Falls was the first convention but it was not the first time women were organizing and demanding their rights. So where does this legend come from? As I researched where the story came from, not the event itself, which becomes super canonical by the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century. And it actually comes out of a series of political battles in the 1870s and the 1860s that Stanton, who had been at the Seneca Falls Convention, Susan B. Anthony, her co-worker and best friend and two of the leading suffragists of the nation. Finally, we're getting to Susan B. Anthony. But before we can understand why Seneca Falls and Susan B. Anthony, who wasn't even there, become so canonical, we need to back up a bit. The declarations at Seneca Falls were inspirational, but they carried no instructions. Just a few months after the meeting, Elizabeth Cady Stanton wrote to a friend, We have declared our right to vote. The question now is how should we get possession of what rightfully belongs to us? At the time, states controlled who could vote and their constitutions outlined who was excluded. For example, if you wanted to vote in Wisconsin in 1848, you had to be a male over the age of 21 and be a resident for at least a year before the election. Then in 1861, the Civil War began. And at that point, for the most part, no women had gained the right to vote in any state. In only a couple of states were women able to vote in certain local elections. But around the country, people are talking about equal rights, and they're talking about the politics of state and federal laws. And when the war was over in 1865, the nature of suffrage had changed. With Reconstruction comes new questions. What does being free mean? What does being a citizen mean? And who will get to decide? Quick reminder from the last episode, because I'm sure you, like me, have not memorized the entire Constitution. The 14th Amendment was written to establish enslaved people as citizens, but it includes the word male for the first time, which complicates voting rights for women. In 1866, Susan B. Anthony responds to a crowd in New York. Now is the hour not only to demand suffrage for the Negro, but for every other human being in the Republic. Suffragists petitioned Congress to consider universal suffrage. And in 1868, a congressman from Indiana introduced an amendment to achieve that one that would give citizens the right to vote without any distinction founded on race, color, or sex. This forward momentum came to an abrupt end. Congress rejected universal suffrage in favor of suffrage for men and proposed the 15th Amendment. A whole variety of complicated national politics are going on, and in the course of those, Congress decides to endorse Black male voting, but not female voting. And they propose, Congress does, the 15th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, um, one of the, the last and final Reconstruction Amendment. And in that, they say that the states may not discriminate in voting on the basis of race, but they don't say on the basis of sex. The women's rights movement lost its fight towards a universal vote for all. For now. 
and African-American women had to choose between their individual rights and the rights of their male allies. Which brings us to the political battles that Lisa Tatro talked about. Two groups with rival ambitions formed. One, called the National Women's Suffrage Association, or The National, was formed by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. And the other, called the American Women's Suffrage Association, was led by Lucy Stone. Remember, we said we'd get back to her. Stanton, Anthony, and The National wanted to keep pressure on the federal government for universal voting rights for women. Stone and the American group wanted to take a state-by-state approach. Some white women would not put the fight for Black men's right to vote ahead of the fight for their own rights. And so Stanton, Anthony, and The National actively campaigned against the 15th Amendment. Because while it would provide for Black men's right to vote, it would still exclude women. Lucy Stone, along with Frederick Douglass and others, would support the 15th Amendment as it was written. But it's important to note that Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass were not always on opposing sides. The Rochester neighbors were also close friends and shared many goals as officers in a group called the American Equal Rights Association. Their goals were at odds at one meeting in May of 1868, however. Douglass addressed the AERA group, saying, You women, meaning white women, have representatives. Your brothers and your husbands and your fathers vote for you. But the black wife has no husband who can vote for her. And Douglas himself did have the right to vote in New York when he lived there. And he voted. Douglas went on to speak to other groups about the dangers that black Americans would face if they didn't achieve full protection under the law. And that meant citizenship and voting rights. If the elective franchise is not extended to the Negro, he dies. He is exterminated. But these arguments did not win over Anthony. She would not campaign for an amendment that gave rights to men and left women out. And in 1869, there was another meeting for the AERA, again to discuss the 15th Amendment. Here's what happened. Stanton and Anthony stand up and refuse to support it, along with a handful of other people. And most of the people in the room are quite shocked and amazed by this, including Frederick Douglass. And there's a very ugly exchange between Anthony and Douglass and Stanton, particularly between Stanton and Douglass, where Stanton stands up and says, if it's a matter of priority where black men go before women, then women should go first. But by this, she clearly means educated white womanhood. And she says, I refuse to support this amendment ignorant black sambos, she uses this kind of racist language, should not be allowed to vote, you know, before educated white womanhood. She goes on to rail against immigrants as ignorant Chinese and Irish immigrants should not be allowed to vote before her elevated white womanhood. And Douglas comes back and says, you know, our lives are in danger. We're being hunted down in the streets across the South and we need the vote to save our lives. And Stanton says no. Stanton and Anthony Bolt. And remember, Douglas had been the big supporter of women's suffrage, and they refused to support black male suffrage before white women's suffrage. And they formed the first national suffrage organization, the National Women's Suffrage Association, which is dedicated to enfranchising women and not supporting the 15th Amendment. I mean, it's a very ugly chapter. It's an ugly chapter that, for the most part, would not get told in history books. Seneca Falls, however, would. This is Lisa Tatro's theory as to why. The story of Seneca Falls itself becomes so important moving forward in the movement and so well-known and so widely known. And its two creators and its two central keepers are Stanton and Anthony themselves. And so Anthony starts to become so tightly associated with the story and so tightly associated with Stanton 
that it starts to seem that she was herself there, even though she wasn't. She will never outright claim to have been there, but she really becomes the keeper of the story in a way that it becomes hers and it then becomes her. As Lisa Tetro tells it, in the 1860s and 70s, Stanton and Anthony's leadership in the suffrage movement is in danger. And they're embattled. They're in, mm, how should we put it? In a whole hot mess. Okay, a whole hot mess. And so looking for good news to share, they start to look backward. They keep positioning themselves as the originators of the movement and thereby the rightful voice of the movement in the present. So that's one of the ways that this myth of Seneca Falls operates. They started to tell and market this story in the 1860s and the 1870s. And eventually it became a story of the movement, but it really began with some very humble origins with kind of Stan and Anthony narrating it as the beginning of the movement for political purposes. And they use this story to kind of rescue and build their cause and their leadership. And we forget that the story itself is a political actor that was used and invented some 40 to 50 years later to serve very political purposes in this very ongoing and deeply embattled movement. In addition to telling a good story, Anthony was interested in images, and she invested in capturing hers. Starting in the 1890s, suffragists established national press committees and hired publicity professionals to distribute Anthony's portrait— Although leading women of color like Ida B. Wells and Mary Church Terrell also had portraits, they lacked the resources to reach a broad audience. So, Rosario, I feel like I'm learning a whole lot of new things about Susan B. Anthony. I mean, she was cool and all, but yikes. <laughs> hmm That's what's so important, actually, about learning about different figures in history is seeing them as whole people in the context of the time that they're in. She might have made different choices now, but according to what she knew and how she was raised and how she envisioned things, it's important to get that perspective and worldview so we can better understand how we got here today. It doesn't always go down easy to learn that our heroes are complicated people. Lisa Tetra has been thinking a lot about this. I think it's important to grapple with those things, not just to necessarily fell Anthony, you know, sort of take her down or discard her. It reminds us that we have to be very, very careful about thinking that social movements are either good or bad. I think the other thing we have to grapple with when we think about Anthony is not just the racism, but we also still, I think, approach these political actors, particularly when they're women, with a sense that they must be altruistic and they must be somehow magically wonderful and, you know, egalitarian and supportive of the sisterhood even if we mark that sisterhood as white. And that's not true either. Anthony was deeply undemocratic in a lot of different ways. She was domineering. She was ambitious. We're not comfortable remembering her that way. And we're accepting of that in men, but we're not accepting of that in women still, I think, in a lot of ways. So there's all kinds of ways in which we have to remember the complexity, not just of this movement, but also of Anthony. When it comes to this period of history and our myths and legends... Tetro and other historians point out that there were many Black and white activists who opposed the racism in the movement. And that other part of the story, the Lucy Stone part, we almost never tell. And what's interesting is part of that is because of the way Stanton and Anthony Lee marginalized her in their own historical work. So Stanton and Anthony not only invent the story of Seneca Falls, they then go on to author in the course of their lifetime a history of the movement. 
it's a massive work. And it becomes the skeleton for narrating the campaign, and it's all centered around their national organization. And they have a line at the end calling Lucy Stone a secessionist you know, that she seceded from them. And that only works when you use Seneca Falls as the beginning, then they are the movement, right? And whoever deviates from them then deviates from the path of history. When in fact, Stan and Anthony were really the ones who, if we want to use this kind of inflammatory post-Civil War language of seceding, they really were the ones that broke. But there's this whole other movement organized around Lucy Stone that is where most Black women will go if they join the kind of mainstream white movement. They'll join the American, not the national But even bringing Lucy Stone into the story doesn't tell the whole tale. Of course, there are thousands of women and men of color fiercely fighting for the cause, too. Other legends and lesser-known figures we'll talk about in episode three and four. And Lucy Stone? Lucy Stone is largely forgotten after her death and after the passage of the 19th Amendment. And even by the time the 19th Amendment passes in 1920, people will say the movement was begun in 1848 at Seneca Falls by Susan B. Anthony. You know, I mean, her obituaries say this so tightly has that story undergirded their leadership. And Lucy Stone will be largely forgotten, partly because she didn't attend to the politics of memory. We'll be back in a minute. That was my jam. (laughs) Well, you know, I'm the voice of Wonder Woman. I'm sorry, what? Oh, oh, yes. I will fight for those who cannot fight for themselves. Uh It's the best. (laughs) (laughs) I get to do all the whoops and hollers. I mean, my my voice is destroyed afterwards, but I mean, great Hera. It's incredible. I'm still hoping for my invisible plane, but I haven't gotten that yet. Oh, jelly. And you know, Wonder Woman was all about voting. I mean, I don't know if the Amazons were Democratic, but she would have been a suffragist. Yeah. But seriously, why are we talking about Wonder Woman during this suffrage centennial year? Well, because the man who created Wonder Woman, William Moulton Marston, was actually a major supporter of women's equality. He crossed paths with suffragists and feminists like Emmeline Pankhurst, Margaret Sanger, and a woman named Inez Milholland. Inez Milholland was a passionate advocate for women's rights and pacifism. But as we all know, sex sells, and it did, even then. Milholland was voted the most beautiful suffragist and is perhaps best known for the stylish way she led the famous 1913 suffrage parade in the Capitol. Dressed in a flowing white cloak and star-shaped crown, she rode a horse named Grey Dawn while leading the marchers. It's easy to see how this image would stick in the mind of Marston as he was creating a female superhero. Wonder Woman was unveiled for the world in 1942. The only hope for civilization is the greater freedom, development, and equality of women in all fields of human activity, he said in a press release. Wonder Woman's goal was to combat the idea that, quote, women are inferior to men and to inspire girls to self-confidence and achievement in athletics, occupations, and professions monopolized by men. Whether or not she was the Justice League secretary, there was no doubt Wonder Woman was a suffragist. (laughs) 
You're listening to And Nothing Less, Episode 2, Myths and Legends. And we're just ticking through some of the biggies of the suffrage movement. The origin story, the iconic and complicated Susan B. Anthony. And now we're up to the anniversary year itself, 100 years from the year 1920. The year the 19th Amendment was ratified. In other words, the year women got the right to vote. No. No? No. Well, here again is Sally Rush Wagner, author of the anthology, The Women's Suffrage Movement. 1920 was not when women first got the vote. Native American women had political voice long before white people entered this land as settlers. And many suffragists were aware of this. Women like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and a fellow women's rights activist named Matilda Jocelyn Gage were interested in the matrilineal culture of the Native nations in their region in upstate New York. In those Haudenosaunee tribes, women were responsible for growing and distributing the food. They also made the decisions about whether or not to go to war. And if families separated, children stayed with their mother's family, as did property. Never was justice more perfect. Never was civilization higher. Gage wrote about the Haudenosaunee, or... Iroquois Confederacy. Suffragists also knew their history, says Wagner. They understood that some women had the right to vote in the U.S. colonies. In the colonies, vote was determined by whether or not you had property. And if women had sufficient property, they voted in some of the colonies. So when the suffragists were organizing In the National Women's Suffrage Association, for example, Matilda Jocelyn Gage, who was one of the leaders, said, we're not asking for a new right. We're asking for the restitution of a right that our foremothers had. They knew women voted in the colonies. For example, in New Jersey, some women could vote between 1776 and 1807 before the right was restricted to white males. Here we are in episode two, and we've been talking a lot about voting. I mean, this is a podcast about suffrage and the 19th Amendment. That only makes sense. True, but that actually brings us to another myth about this history. It was not just about the vote. To understand the women's movement of the 18th and early 19th century, Sally Rush Wagner asks us to think about how diverse the women's movement of today is. If somebody wrote our history and said, well, from 1970 to 2020, the entire focus of the women's movement was the Equal Rights Amendment. It would be as wrong as it is to say that the movement in the 19th century was only the vote. They raised everything from violence against women, equal pay for equal work, There was a dress reform movement, women having control of their birthing experience, pretty much mirrored what we continue to do because we haven't won any of those battles yet. So now we come to our final myth. And again, it's one that places us at this anniversary year, 1920, and the reason we're celebrating, everybody votes. You get a vote. And you get a vote. And even you, over there, you get a vote. Actually, the 19th Amendment does not give women the right to vote. Uh, You should probably say that again. The 19th Amendment does not give women the right to vote. I know. It takes a minute. Here, let Lisa Tatro explain. 
One of the great misnomers about the 19th Amendment is that it lets women into a constitutional right to vote. There is no constitutional right to vote, and it only lets some women in. So the 19th Amendment says to the states, who are actually the people who control voting in the United States, the federal government does not control who voters are. It's rare in that regard. States do. So the 19th Amendment says to the states, it's one of the few times the feds say to the states who you can and can't let vote, you may not discriminate on the basis of sex. So what happens is that where states require voters be male, that word gets struck down. And that helps all women because that word was barring all women from voting where it existed. The thing is, it's not sufficient to help all women because many women are still ensnared in other restrictions that the states have. It was a privilege for white women often because they didn't have any other restrictions in their way. So the 19th Amendment enfranchised them indirectly. But many women of color in the South still face poll taxes, or many Latinx women in New Mexico still face literacy tests, or many immigrants in New York face literacy tests. So there would have been other things at the state level that would have barred them, but the 19th Amendment helped all women. It just wasn't sufficient to help all women. So as Lisa and other historians explain it, women didn't start voting with the 19th Amendment, nor does the 19th Amendment ensure access to the ballot for all women. It still allows discrimination in voting on any other grounds. And this centennial gives us an opportunity to revisit the health of our democracy and ask ourselves, what have we won and what do we still need to fight for? Questions we'll ask on the next episode of And Nothing Less. I'm Rosaria Dawson. And I'm Retta. This was And Nothing Less. From the Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission, the National Park Service, and PRX. This podcast was envisioned by WSCC Executive Director Anna Lehman with support from Kelsey Millay. The production team is executive producer Genevieve Sponsler, producer and audio engineer Samantha Gatzik, and writer and producer Robin Lynn. Original score by Erica Wong, with additional music from Epidemic Sound. The historical content used to create these stories was brought to you by the National Park Service. Teachers can download companion lesson plans at go.nps.gov slash suffrage podcast. For even more suffrage history, visit the Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission at womensvote100.org. I'm Allie Raisman, and I'm the host of a new podcast for the whole family called The Magic Sash. Join me, Lottie, and Isaiah on a time-traveling adventure to learn about the fight for women's right to vote. It's a story about people demanding their voices be heard. Listen to The Magic Sash wherever you find your podcasts.